Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I know that's a general sentiment that should be brimming from the heart of a follower of Jesus, looking forward to Lord's Day worship. Um, But I want to say that when the elders, Daniel, called me and asked me if I'd be willing to speak this Sunday here at Cornerstone Fellowship Church after our Trinity Fellowship Church General Assembly, I said I was glad when they said to me, let us gather with the church in Apex. Um, I love being with you. Um, Your church is a, a family to me and your leaders are dear friends to me and even though I've been getting to know Daniel and Jim and John, um, more Mike, more deeply over the last half a dozen years. It's been well over a decade that the Lord's allowed me to have a dear uh, friendship and uh, experience a mentoring of sorts from Phil Sasser. And so you, you and your leaders mean much to me and just to be here with you again. I honestly wasn't expecting to get an invite back so soon. It was wonderful to be with you for your 30th year anniversary uh, outdoor worship celebration in June, and that was just a spectacular celebration of God's faithfulness to you, Cornerstone, over these last 30 years, and it was a delight to be a part of that with you, and I'm still hoping you're, you're feeling the energy and the joy of, of that marked moment as a local church as you go into your 31st year as a local church making much of Jesus together. This was a really, really exciting past week, and if I just want to ask Daniel if I could make some comments before we actually get into the Word this morning. Um, This was a very significant moment for our new denomination um, here this week. Um, This was, we we concluded our three-year interim period of time that we had set aside for the, for the building of Trinity Fellowship Churches. And you've heard of church planting. Um, we were doing denomination planting. And it was a very, very exciting time, a very a three years packed with a lot of hard work of, of leaning into the Lord and seeking God's guidance and seeking God's direction and working together as 30-plus elders from a dozen churches to build out the, the framework for this denomination to, to develop a book of church order and to develop a confession of faith. And it was, it's, it's been such a wonderful, wonderful time. And I just want to let you know that you, Cornerstone Fellowship Church, have played a significant role in a number of times providing space and showing hospitality so that those elders, so that we could do that work and lean into the Lord and, and work together toward this amiable, amiable project that the Lord had, has given to us. And so thank you for your hospitality. Um, the Lord was with us this week, and you provided this space for us to gather to do that. And I just want to extend a special word of gratitude to Benjamin and to Donna and to Maria for, for the work of the staff of Cornerstone Church and providing food and meals and coffee. I mean, you need the Holy Spirit and you need coffee to do the kind of work that we were doing. Um, and so it, it, you've provided, again, just an, an amazing amount of hospitality and kindness um, so that we could do the work that we were called to do. And so the end of this week was really a momentous occasion for us as a new denomination. And, and as I had the opportunity to address the elders at the end of our General Assembly, I, I kind of gave an analogy of what it felt like. Back in 2008, 
during one of the recessions. Uh, you may remember that George W. Bush kind of released these economy stimulus checks. Do you remember that? And I remember convincing my wife after long conversations, well, the president wants us to use this to stimulate the economy, so let's use it. And we kind of discerned, what will we use this economy stimulus check for? And so I had just remembered that for, for many, many months, we would go to Sam's Club, and that's where we do some of our bulk shopping, because when the kids were really little, that's where we get the diapers. And we were, through, we were going through Sam's Club around that time when we got those stimulus checks, and there was this, like, granddaddy playset for the backyard. The kind of thing where, like, you know, you just don't have extra money for that, but hey, you know what? We got the stimulus check. Let's stimulate that economy. So we purchased that, that playset. And so I went back to Sam's Club to pick up that playset, and wouldn't you know that that thing was, that thing was in seven massive boxes, nothing pre-assembled. And if you, know, if you knew me and how mechanically challenged and industrially inept I am, this was like an oh-no moment. <laughs> and so I tote those boxes back home, and I, I talk my brothers into coming over multiple times over the course of many months. I open the first over the course of a month. I open up the box, and there's this instruction manual, and it says, two moderately skilled people, 48 hours. I'm like, this is going to be my life for the next millennium. <laughs> and so over the course of a month, we just slowly but surely put that playset together. And it's like our three kids during that process, they, they're up against the back window watching us. When is it going to be ready? When is it going to be ready? And I, I still remember the day when it was finally all put together, when it was finally anchored, and just watching the kids dart out the back door and start enjoying that thing that we had been building for about a month, 48 hours a month, you know, same thing. <laughs> That's kind of how it's felt for us as a denomination. For the last three years, we've been, we've been unpacking the boxes and putting things together, and there's been this anticipation that once we get this thing built, the way that the Lord was leading us to build it, we just couldn't wait to use it. And now it's, it's usable. And we're looking forward to this denominational structure that the Lord has led us to build together as the elders of Trinity Fellowship Churches to be a blessing to her churches and to her leaders and to the churches we will plant and the future churches we will partner with and your children and your children's children and so on for many generations if the Lord wills. That this, this denomination, this Fellowship of churches will be used to bring God the Father glory through God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. So it's been a momentous week. And thank you once again for not only providing space for us to build it, but also for being a part of it. We get to make much of the triune God together as a fellowship of churches till the Lord returns and makes all things new. Amen. Luke 18 is our text. So Daniel already mentioned it was at the end of June that our family packed our bags, packed up our house, got in two Jeeps with five people and three dogs and drove 3,000 miles cross-country from Philadelphia to San Jose, California to Lord Willing 
um, be a part of establishing a New Testament church in the 10th largest city in the United States, one of the most influential cities in the Bay Area in Northern California. And so as we've gotten there, we've hit the ground running, and we've had many opportunities to serve not only the church planting group that we're working with in San Jose, but to also serve some other churches around the Bay, some churches that are in need of revitalization, in need of care and counsel, in need of leadership. And so I've had the opportunity to fill the pulpit for a church in San Mateo on the east, on the, on the west side of the Bay, close to San Francisco. And I remember I was preaching there uh, back in the middle of September, and after I was done preaching, I had a gentleman approach me, and he said, quite directly, is there any chance I can convert you into a 49ers fan? (laughs) And I said, you must not know who you're talking to. (laughs) I mean, I am born and raised, die-hard Philadelphia sports fan, and I am assuredly a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Fly, Eagles, fly. I mean, I was born bleeding Eagles green, and my wife interjects herself in the conversation. He also cries Eagles green. (laughs) Being a die-hard sports fan has many ups and downs. It's feast or famine. Right now it's feast, but I'm not holding my breath because I know how this goes. It's very fragile. One of my favorite things to do as a Philadelphia sports fan, as an Eagles fan in particular, is that for all the years that I've served in pastoral ministry in Philadelphia, we were, we were always known for the family that would throw the, the Eagles watch parties on Sunday. So after church, we'd have anybody who wanted to come over, watch the Eagles games with us. They were welcome to. We'd just pack out our little urban backyard with, with all the Eagles fans. But I'd always say, if you're not coming to watch the game, don't come. This isn't a moment for me to give you counsel about whatever theological question you have. We can do that later, but not during the game. And so I'd send out this massive text, and people would respond. And if they were coming to the game, they would always, almost always respond with this question. What can I bring? That's a polite thing to ask. You're coming to someone's house. You're going to be a part of a party. I mean, what can I contribute to the, to the food and to the drink? And so every once in a while, when it was like the big game. Eagles versus Dallas Cowboys, we would kind of pull out all the stops, we'd decorate, we'd go mad, it would be a great time. And we'd always respond for those games, don't bring anything. We got it covered. Just show up. Don't, don't bring anything. And wouldn't you know that when they, people would show up, even though we told them not to bring anything, they would always bring something. Why? We do not like to show up empty-handed. Now that might be polite, when we're going to each other's homes. But in Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus gives us a parable that teaches quite the opposite when it comes to entering the house of the Lord. In our text, Jesus gives us a parable about two people who show up at the temple. One comes with something and walks away with nothing. The other comes with nothing and walks away with everything. And in the end, Jesus says, you want to be like the person who comes with nothing. And I think it will make sense as we dive into the text. So let me direct your attention now to Acts or Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Let us hear the word of God. And he, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is God's word. May he add his blessing to its reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Luke doesn't want us to guess what Jesus is getting at in this parable. He, he connects the dots for us up front so it's crystal clear before we proceed. Look at verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus is on a very pointed mission on this, with this parable. He's, he's proverbially, metaphorically punched in the coordinates, and he is aiming for particular hearts, dealing with a particular struggle, and that struggle is self-righteousness. According to Jesus, in verse 9, self-righteousness is a two-headed monster that must be slayed. It's trusting in yourself to be right with God, and it's judging others harshly, in order to justify your inflated view of self. It's a combination of judging yourself wrongly and judging others wrongly to justify your judgment on yourself. So self-righteousness involves having a, a, a judgmentally low view of others that's used as a means of validating a high view of self. It's a heart that says, I'm okay, because as I look around me, I'm doing better than most people around here. And oddly enough, it's, it's those infected with this sin of thinking that they have it all together that this somehow impresses God. Self-righteousness leads to self-delusion. However, God is not impressed with anyone who thinks they have it all together. In fact, the opposite is true. God exalts those who humble themselves and honestly admit, I've got nothing. So this parable highlights the reality that the way we come to God, the only way to come to God, is to recognize that we have nothing and therefore we come to him for everything. In the end, it's only those who humbly bring their nothing to Christ, that find everything they need now and forever in him. Now, before we proceed into the content of this parable, let me just remind us this morning, Christianity is not for those who have it all together. 
Christianity is for sinners who know they need a Savior. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came, we're told one chapter later, to seek and to save those who got it all together. No, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was sent by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit because none of us have it all together. And so in mercy, church, Jesus is available today to offer everything needed to those who humbly admit, I've got nothing. Scripture's clear. We've brought nothing into this world. Surely we'll take nothing with us. And in between the beginning and the end, the story is the same. We've got nothing. So know this from the outset. My goal is not to build our self-esteem today. <laughs> it's a reality check. You've got nothing. You've got nothing to make yourself acceptable to God. You've got nothing to make life work. You've got nothing to overcome your demons. You've got nothing to get yourself out of bed in the morning when you're so despondent and discouraged. You barely have the strength to extend your hand and push the snooze button again. You've got nothing to overcome that addiction. You've got nothing to make that marriage work. You've got nothing to bring those children up in the nurture and admission of the Lord. You've got nothing to make yourself morally, mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, and spiritually whole. You've got nothing to make up for your failures, to cover your shame, and to get from underneath that debt of guilt you owe God because you were made for his glory, but you've fallen short of it. Church, Scripture's clear. You've got nothing. I've got nothing. But here's the good news. Jesus is everything. Amen. That's the gospel. I've got nothing. You've got nothing. But Jesus is everything. And so Jesus invites us through the teaching of this not-so-cryptic, pretty clear parable. We've got nothing. And if we come with our nothing to him, in place of our nothing, he will give us everything we need now and forever in him. That deserves an amen. So this parable is Jesus graciously confronting us and, and inviting us to stop acting like we have it all together and to humbly bring our nothing to him. And when we bring are nothing to him. We will find the glorious truth that's embedded in this parable. The only way to find everything you need is to humbly bring your nothing to Christ. That's the big idea we want to consider this morning. The only way to find everything you need is to humbly bring your nothing to Christ. As I already mentioned, this this parable won't send you off into an Oprah Winfrey-induced celebration of the self. This parable is not going to make you want to go out and get a tattoo that says, I am enough. This, part, this parable is not going to make you want to throw a me party. But what this parable will do is cause you to say today and every day, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, 
or I die. If you're here this morning and you are keenly aware of your nothing, I got good news for you. Jesus can do and will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Jesus has for you what you don't have. And Jesus invites us as his people in his kingdom to over and over again bring our nothing to him. And in place of our empty hands of nothing, he will fill them with mercy and grace upon grace upon grace time and time again. And if you're here this morning and you think you can, by comparison to others, kind of make life work, that you feel like as you, as you, as you pan the room, as you, as you consider the people that you know in your life, and especially as you follow the people, uh, the, the public figures in life, and you say, you know what, I'm not as bad as them. I, I'm, I'm okay. Then I, I think if that's you this morning and you're trying to make life work in your own strength, I know something about you. You're tired. You're exhausted. You're tempted to give up. And you need to realize, like everyone else around you, you don't have it all together. And before you leave today, my hope is that God will convince you that you've got nothing. But don't stop there. He shows you that he's your everything. So regardless if you're someone professing to be a follower of Jesus, someone exploring the truth claims of the Christian faith, or someone reluctantly here in the gathering of this church for one reason or another, let's all be open to the possibility of Jesus showing us something about ourselves that we do not like, but convincing us that he is sufficient and he is everything. So let's allow the truth of this parable to do its work, both in disorienting and then renewing all of our hearts. May we all come to a greater realization that the only way to find everything we need is to humbly bring our nothing to Christ. So you probably noticed in the reading of this text that this is one of Jesus' parables of contrasts. And in particular, we we see the truth of this parable emerge in three contrasts. So let's turn our attention to them. Let me give you all three up front, and then we'll look at them one by one. We're going to see two very different people in verse 10. Two very different prayers in verses 11 through 13, and two very different possibilities in verse 14. First, two very different people. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Why why are these two men going to the temple? To pray. That's another way of saying that they're going to talk to God. They're going to relate to God. They're going to meet with God. That's what the temple existed for. The temple is the place where God and man meet. As I mentioned earlier, the temple was also referred to as the house of the Lord. Philip brought this up this morning in his teaching on the Sunday gathering, is that that even though God is omnipresent at all places, at all times, his entire being... God is especially present when his people would gather at the temple under the old covenants. God was especially present with his people at the temple. His glory filled the temple. His mercy flowed from the temple. His words were declared at the temple. His praises were sung at the temple. The temple is where you went to encounter God. And what the temple was under the old covenant, the church of Jesus Christ is under the new covenant. We've come together today 
as a spiritual temple with Christ as our cornerstone. And when two or three are gathered in his name, he's right here in our midst. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in you? And God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What does this mean? Like these two men, we've not gathered at a physical temple, but as the spiritual temple, we've been made into a dwelling place for God the Father, by God the Spirit, through our union with Jesus. And we've come together this morning. You've come together this morning for this glorious purpose, to encounter God, to engage with God, to talk to God, to sing to God, to hear from God. This is why the temple comes together. And these two men are approaching God at the temple. One is a Pharisee, and the other is a tax collector. So in the days that Jesus walked on the earth, these two men couldn't have been more different than the other. You think elephants and donkeys are different from one another? No, these men were really different from one another. Pharisees were considered the most pious people in Jewish society, while tax collectors were considered the most despised people in Jewish society. Pharisees were thought to be loyal to God and the Jewish people, doing the dignified work of the one true God, while tax collectors were thought to be traitors of the one true God and traitors of the Jewish people, doing the dirty work of their Roman oppressors. And so as we see these two different men approaching the temple, one guy is the guy that you would expect to see there. The other guy, uh, not so much. So in Luke's repeated literary style in his gospel, he's portraying the Pharisee as the religious insider and the tax collector as the irreligious outsider. But here they both are, drawing near to God at the temple. Notice, second, two very different prayers. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice a couple points of contrast in these prayers. First, notice the contrast in the posture of their prayers. The Pharisee in verse 11 is standing by himself while the tax collector is standing far off. The tax collector is standing far off because he doesn't feel worthy to be, to be any closer. He's, he's the back row guy. No offense, back row people. He's the back row guy because he wants to slip in and slip out because he knows he doesn't feel like he belongs there. He doesn't feel worthy. He needs to be there. He wants to be there, but he doesn't feel like he belongs there. I mean, God is holy. He is sinful. So this, this keeps him on the fringe. His head is bowed. He won't even lift up his eyes to God in heaven. This reveals his sense of shame and contrition. He's beating his breast, which reveals his, his contrition that he's taking ownership for his sin and the content of his prayer. Contrast this posture with the Pharisee. 
who presumably is kind of looking around as he's praying. And the reason why we know he's looking around, because as he's talking to God, he has the audacity to say, at least I'm not like that guy over there, God. One posture reveals humility, godly sorrow, and contrition, while the other prayer reveals hubris and self-righteous comparison. Notice another contrast in in the content of their prayers. The Pharisee begins his prayer with the pattern of a psalm of thanksgiving. God, I thank you. That's a good way to start a prayer, isn't it? God, I thank you. Great way to start a prayer. It acknowledges that everything we have has come to us from the gracious, merciful, good, and sovereign hand of God. There's nothing that we have that we have not received. This is a good, healthy Holy pattern of beginning a prayer. God, I thank you. But he should have stopped there. Because what follows, what should follow in this form of prayer, is being thankful for the works of God. But rather than being thankful for the works of God, he's recounting his own works before God. Five times in two verses, he uses the first person personal pronoun, I. I mean, his prayer is like, I, 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 I. I mean, he's glad. He goes, I don't commit the sins of other people around me. I go beyond the call of duty to fast twice a week when the law only prescribes twice, fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. I tithe off of everything, not just my income, but even my groceries. I mean, if this is the guy who would give like a portion of his Captain Crunch and his Pop-Tarts back to the Lord. Sorry, there's kids in the room. The broccoli and the carrots, right? His prayer reveals that the thing he is most thankful for is himself. God, I thank you for me, myself, and I. He trusts that his lifestyle And his life choices impress God and make him better than those around him, especially the tax collector. But notice the prayer of the tax collector. One sentence. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The content of his prayer shows that he hasn't come to God to impress God. He comes to God to confess that he sinned against him. He doesn't come to God to be rewarded by God. He comes to be reconciled to God. He's got nothing to commend himself. You can see that. He's empty. He's excuseless. He's got nothing. His prayer is a penitent plea for mercy. His hands are empty. He has one option, one hope, one recourse to trust God for mercy. All of this reveals a contrast in the heart of their prayers. It's not just the posture. It's not just the content. It's the heart. The Pharisee is self-focused and self-righteous in his heart, and his prayer basically says, I'm the man. While the tax collector is bowed and broken, and his prayer basically says, I'm a mess. Have mercy. Notice, finally, that these two different prayers from these two different men lead to two very different possibilities or outcomes. Jesus says, I tell you, 
this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so here is the lesson from this very short parable that's being driven home by Jesus. The one who comes to God thinking he had everything goes away with nothing. But the one who comes to God with nothing goes away with everything. That's what the word justified means here in this context. This isn't the super technical sense in which the word justified or justification is used in the Pauline epistles, particularly in the book of Romans. It's just used in its simple denotative sense. This person went home justifying, meaning acquitted, accepted, and appropriately connected to the God he was praying to. So the Pharisee went home self-deceived that he was right with God because of all that he does for God. The tax collector, however, went home justified because of what God had done for him. He took those empty hands and he filled them with mercy. So the Pharisee exalts himself and in the end, he will be humiliated in judgment while the tax collector humbles himself and the end will be exalted with salvation. And that's the point of the parable. The only way to find everything you need is to humbly bring your nothing to Christ. So what's the lesson for us? It's obvious. There are only two ways for us to approach God. You can come to God like the Pharisee, or you can come to God like the tax collector. This is Jesus' point. And I don't believe his point, especially in the context of his parables, is simply to say this is how you get into the kingdom of God. Certainly that is a feature of this parable. The only way you enter into the kingdom of God is to humbly come with your empty hands, realizing that you need your Savior King to show you mercy. But Jesus and his parables are not just talking about getting into the kingdom. He's talking about life within the kingdom. What it looks like to live your life under the redemptive reign of King Jesus. What it looks like to live your life under his reign, receiving his power to show a watching world what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come to earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus says there's only two ways to come into the kingdom and live under the king in the kingdom. And this prayer demonstrates it. You can come like a Pharisee, thinking you have it all together, or you can come like the tax collector with your nothing, with your empty hands extended, giving everything you need from Christ. So what does it look like for you to bring your nothing to Christ this morning? What does it look like for you to live life in the kingdom as a child of God with empty hands day by day? And well, it can start by simply learning the words to this very simple prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It looks like this is the, the way we enter the kingdom of God is the way we live in the kingdom of God. We came to Jesus with nothing 
depending upon him for everything. And now, as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we continue to do the same thing day by day. Jesus, I've got nothing. I need you to be my everything. And think about the thing that's heaviest on your heart this morning. Think about the greatest burden you may be carrying as a child of God. What makes it so heavy? What makes the burden so unbearable? Is it not that there's nothing you can do to make it work? Is it not that there's nothing you can do to fix it? Is it not that there's nothing that you can do to change it? And as you carry those burdens this morning, as you feel the weight of that that individual that you've been praying for, that God would get a hold of their hearts and change their lives, or, or, or you've been carrying that heavy burden of a difficult medical diagnosis, or you, you've been carrying the burden of that child that you've raised from such a young age to, 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 to follow the Lord, and now as an adult, they're not the weight of uncertainty with your future as it relates to your employment, the weight of things that you are carrying, the reason why those burdens are so heavy is it not because there's nothing you can do to change it. There's nothing you can do to make it work. There's nothing you can do to fix it. So what is your only recourse? Empty your hands and release those burdens at the foot of your Savior. Show him your empty palms and say with the tax collector, I've got nothing, but you have everything. As we bring our nothing, as we bring our empty hands, as we release our burdens and empty our hands at the throne of grace, we trust that God will give us mercy and grace to help in that time of need. The Christian life is a day-by-day bringing your nothing and trusting Christ for your everything. Come to the Lord today and empty your hands once again. Stop carrying those burdens. They are not yours to bear. Christ, your merciful, wonderful, merciful Savior invites you to empty your hands before him and admit that you've got nothing. But he, in fact, will be your everything. If you're not a Christian this morning, then I want to invite you this morning to bring your nothing to Christ and trust him to be your everything. As I was praying over this text this morning and seeking the Lord's guidance and direction to bring this sermon. I had a particular burden placed on my heart for this, by the Holy Spirit for the young people in this room. Really mapped onto one of the prophetic words that was shared about young people and young adults wandering from the Lord. And I believe the Lord wants to address the hearts of those who have been a part of the gathered church, a part of the visible church, a part of the rhythms of life together as a worshiping community, but yet whose hearts 
have yet to come to Christ empty-handed to receive everything they need. And so this morning, I want to invite you this morning to come to Christ with your empty hands. And when you come to him this morning, expect him to be your everything. The one who left heaven and came to earth and lived the life you could not live and died the death you deserve to die and was raised from the dead invites you to come empty-handed and find in him your everything. He will be your justification. He will forgive your sin and declare you righteous. Bring your empty hands to Christ and he will be your reconciliation. He will restore your relationship to God. Come to Christ empty-handed and he will be your sanctification. He will change your life from the inside out. Bring your empty hands to Christ and he will be your satisfaction. He will satisfy your soul like nothing in this world can do. Bring your empty hands to Christ and he will be your sustenance. He will provide for you. He will protect you and he will hold your life together. Bring your empty hands to Christ and he will be your strength. He will pour out the Holy Spirit upon you to resist sin, to be renewed in his image, and to empower you with gifts of service to make a difference and an impact in this world for the sake of God's kingdom. Come to Christ with your empty hands this morning, and he will be your wisdom. He will be your healing. He will be your hope. He will be your guide. Christ will be your light in the darkness, your shepherd in the wilderness, and your companion in your loneliness. Oh, young person, come to Christ, and he will be your everything. And for those who've already trusted in Christ, is he not all this and more? Yes. Can you testify to an unbelieving generation that Christ is? is all, that Christ is indeed justification and redemption and reconciliation and sanctification and satisfaction and sustenance and strength and wisdom and guidance and power. Is not Christ your all? And then let us declare to the next generation among us and to those outside the church that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is our everything. Bring your nothing to Christ, and he will be your everything. And a particular word for those of you who have been following Christ for some time, two texts that I believe are related to this truth that are meant to refresh and exhort and renew. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Oh, mature Christian, you never outgrow needing Jesus for everything. Without him, you could do nothing at the moment of your conversion. And without him, you can do nothing at this point in time in your sanctification. Without him, you can do nothing. But with him, First Peter, Second Peter, chapter one, verse three, his divine power has given us everything for life and godliness through him who has called us. Without Jesus, you can do nothing. With him, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. And so come to him with a renewed awareness this morning. Oh, you've been faithful to Christ. You have been maturing in Christ. 
You've been a glad-hearted servant of Christ. But oh, remember this morning, you never outgrow your desperate need of Christ. You need him just as much today as you did the first day you said, I believe. It was Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, who said, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. Cornerstone Church, you have a great need for Christ. And you have a great Christ for your need. My brothers in Christ, fathers, husbands, seeking to lead your family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you have a great need for Christ. And a great Christ for your need. Mothers who are nurturing and supporting and coming alongside and manifesting the, the, the sustaining mercy of God's everlasting hearts, you have a great need for Christ and a great Christ for your need. Oh, children of the church, young and old, if you're living in your home, your parents' home, I'm still calling you a child. You have a great need for Christ and a great Christ for your need. Your parents' dependence upon Christ is a blessing to you, but it doesn't count for you. You must grab onto Jesus. Church, you have a great need for Christ and you have a great Christ for your need. The only way to find everything you need is to humbly bring your nothing to Christ. I've got nothing. You've got nothing. But oh Christ, he has been and always will be our everything. Amen? Let's pray. As the hymn writer penned so many years ago. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. We've got nothing, Lord. But the good news is your son is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, and unending in his grace. And so this morning, what we simply ask that you reorient our hearts, renew our hearts in dependence upon your Son, the same Christ who saved us in our conversion is the same Christ who continues to save us from sin's power, sin's presence, and sin's temptations. We need Christ today, yesterday, and forever. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you don't turn away our empty hands, but you welcome us into your presence to have those empty hands filled with everything we need. So Holy Spirit, would you fall fresh upon us. Father, send the Spirit in Jesus' name. 
to humble our hearts and renewed dependence upon our Savior. The one who saved us is the one who sustains us. For without him, we can do nothing. But with him, we can bear much fruit and bring you glory, Father. And so may our heart posture be like this tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me. Again and again and again. All we have is your son. And he is enough. We pray in his name.